0: Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the best old time radio podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show that was originally broadcast on the 5th of December back in 2016. We hope you enjoy it.
1: It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon.
2: I better get it out of the safe now. All right, let's go.
0: one and all welcome come on in come on in grab a seat there's plenty of seats up front there's a few back there in the corner boy you guys are looking good good to see you this is bob bro i'm sorry we've been uh, been away from the last couple of shows but we're back we're back i hope you enjoyed the uh, the rebroadcast that we did of some of our previous shows glad to have you along boy you guys look great look at chester in there Back at the at the sound control, did you see him? See how tan he is? Yeah, you did. No, you look good. You look healthy. Yeah. He uh, he went on a uh, cruise over the over the uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Went down in the Caribbean, right? What 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 islands did you visit, Chester? Haiti. They they cruised to Haiti. No earthquakes down there, or any horrible hurricanes or anything? No. Good. Okay. Where else did you go? Well, yeah, you can tell me later. Talking through glass, I can't hear. But uh, he—he was in several islands, and he looks very good. Anyway, we're glad to have you on board. This is Bob Rowe. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the old-time radio show where we play programs that we actually remember from when we were kids. Why? Because we're baby boomers. Now, some of these we—we don't actually remember hearing on the radio. Some of them we do. Some of them. We remember their later manifestations as shows on the early day, or from the early days of television. But at any rate, we've got a great lineup tonight. We have an Adventures of Philip Marlowe. We're going to follow that up with a very funny episode of the Jack Benny Show. And of course, as always, we're going to finish things up on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas with an episode of Gunsmoke. So we're just so glad you're all back, and we're back. So pull up a seat and make yourselves comfortable, because we're going to get started in Just a moment. I said welcome glad to have you guys back. Hey to start things off this week I want to play a song and I want to see if you can tell me the name of the singer. If you do you <laughs> you belong on Boomer Boulevard. Sam. doobie 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 do you know who sang that I'll tell you what we'll have a couple more by her right after our first show and uh, if you can't guess it by then we'll we'll let you know at the end Switch the, the screen to black and white. We're going to go back to 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. We're going to meet up with some tough guys, maybe walk down a dark alley. It's time for a little Radio Noir, everybody. And this week we have an Adventures of Philip Marlowe. We haven't uh, featured Philip Marlowe recently, or in, in the, at least not in the too recent uh, past. And so it was time. Now, this one tonight was originally broadcast on July the 14th in 1951, and I love the Philip Marlowes that are a little lighthearted. <laughs> I love to see when uh, when Gerald Moore plays Philip Relaxed, and that's what we have this week. It's a good one. This one is entitled The Dear Dead Days, and I think you're going to.
3: Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn.
4: From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Dear Dead Days.
3: I stood at the window and looked down at the Saturday morning traffic. A thousand inchworms playing follow the leader to the beach, to the mountains, to Aunt Millie's, to any place. I had time, a book... There was food in the refrigerator and a coffee cup in my hand. Across the room, there was an easy chair and cigarettes on the table beside it. The clock said it was 9.15. I hadn't shaved and I wasn't going to. It was Saturday all day and it was mine. Ah, now let's see. see, where was I? Oh, yeah, here it is. She was the most breathtaking thing he'd ever seen. She lay back on the divan, stretched, smiled languorously up at her. Oh, no. Okay, okay. Hello.
5: Mr. Marlowe? Mr. Philip Marlowe? Speaking. Uh, you don't know me, Mr. Marlowe. My name is Phoebe Cardwell. Mrs. Phoebe Cardwell. Yeah? Well, I thought perhaps the name would mean something to you.
3: Cardwell? Uh, no, I'm afraid not. Uh,
5: well, No matter. You do help people, don't you? I mean, if someone is missing, you find them.
3: Well, sometimes, Mrs. Cardwell. it all depends. Have you checked the police?
5: Oh, no, oh, my dear, no, I wouldn't think of that. Oh? You see, it's Stevens, my chauffeur. Oh, oh well, now, I mustn't mislead you. Strictly speaking, he is not my chauffeur.
3: But strictly speaking, he is missing.
5: Yes, at least he seems to be, and, and I don't trust phones entirely, Mr. Marlowe. I couldn't even have called you except uh, Matilda went to a friend's. And I do need your help.
3: Yeah, I see. If well... you could
5: come out right away, it's
3: most important to me. Uh, I
5: live in Venice, Mr. Marlowe. If you drive down Sepulveda to, to Washington
3: Boulevard... Well, what do you do? Maybe I thought about my grandmother. Maybe I thought of 25 bucks a day. I don't know. Whatever it was, I joined the inchworm anonymity that was the traffic line of the Beach cities. Now, Venice is not a spot to which I normally gravitate, but there was something in Mrs. Phoebe Cardwell's distinguished old voice that told me this was not a Saturday for normalcy. The house was what used to be called a bungalow, and the ramrod little figure waiting for me in the doorway was what used to be called beautiful. Phoebe Cardwell, for all her 75 years, had worn well and uh, knew it.
5: It's just possible that I didn't make myself entirely clear on the phone, Mr. Marlowe, about Stevens.
3: Well, he's your chauffeur and he's missing, huh? He
5: was my chauffeur. It, it, it seemed like a very long time ago since I've seen him. You see, after Horace died in 1948... Uh, Horace was my husband. Oh. Uh, you see, after Horace died, Stevens stayed on to drive for the family who took our Pasadena house. Mm. Oh, oh, he did this with my blessing, of course. Horace, rest him, left me very little, really... I, I say this with no malice, Mr. Marlowe. Merely to point out that for me to retain Stevens was quite out of the question.
3: Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. So
5: I moved in with my younger sister, Matilda. Mm. Um, she's visiting a friend at the moment. I I wouldn't want Matilda to share my uh, concern over Stevens, and I'm sure you'll respect that.
3: Oh, of course, Mrs. Godwell. Uh, thank you. Now, look, so far as you know, is Stevens still driving for the family who took your house? Oh,
5: I'm sure he is. He uh-huh. must be. It's just that, well... On Thursdays, his day off yeah. He always brought the limousine over to take me for rides and run my little errands Oh, oh understand now, the Brants are fully aware of this
3: That's the family he works for
5: uh, Who have my home in Pasadena
3: And Stevens hasn't been to see you in some time
5: In weeks, and not a word, you understand I, uh, I find it difficult to tell you precisely how I feel about this, Mr. Marlowe Stevens is like a son to me Perhaps he's ill or troubled. Oh, I'd want to know that. I might be able to help.
3: You phoned, I suppose?
5: Oh, I'm embarrassed to say how many times. But no answer, none at all. Oh, oh, I've a writing desk in my room, Mr. Marlowe. I'll write the Pasadena address and phone number for you. My number, too. Oh, I I shan't be a moment now.
3: I'd seen the ring when I first sat down opposite her. First because it was big, almost massive, on a tiny right hand. Then because it didn't fit the rest of the lavender and old lace picture that she presented. A mass of jade and gold carved with oriental figures. A foreboding thing that reeked quality of its kind and value. After she left, the vases jumped out at me from the mantle. Small gold and jade again. And as incongruously out of place as Phoebe Cardwell and Sister Matilda's bungalow. There.
5: Now that didn't take long, did it?
3: Oh, not long at all.
5: Oh, I like you, Mr. Marlowe. You'll find Stevens for me, I know.
3: Well, I hope so, Mrs. Cardwell. And if I do, what'll I tell him?
5: That I want to see him or hear from him. Stevens will understand.
3: Yeah, well, I... Uh... Oh, oh, dear.
5: Huh? Th- that's Matilda. Phoebe, I'm home, dearie. I... So, oh. so I see, my dear. Mr. Marlowe, may I present my sister, Miss Reed? Miss Reed? Uh, with an eye like Wallace Reed. I'm sure, Mr. Marlowe... Oh. Maybe you don't remember, Wally.
3: Well, I tell you, I... Matilda dabbled in
5: theatricals at one time, Mr. Marlowe. Dabbled in theatricals? I was in pictures in the golden era, Mr. Marlowe, when silence was golden. Oh,
3: that Wallace Reed, yeah. Uh,
5: Mr. Marlowe's in insurance, my dear, and and some younger than we Uh, are. Did you see the covered wagon, Ernest Torrance? I had a big scene with him on the prairie, right by one of the wagon wheels. No,
3: not first run. I'm waiting for it to come to my neighborhood theater. (laughs) Matilda was a doll, real live Cupid doll, but her role in this thing was strictly comedy relief. The drama, if there was any, was Phoebe Cardwell, a missing chauffeur that wasn't hers anymore, and the glaring memory of jade and gold that didn't seem to fit anywhere. Well, I missed the house on Orange Grove Avenue by two numbers, parked the car, and walked back. The old Cardwell place was set well back from the street, and its solid red brick looked big, important... And empty.
6: Nobody home.
3: Hmm.
6: Nobody home.
3: At first, I thought there were three honey-colored Afghans on the lawn next door, but the one in the middle was talking to me. It, and as I walked closer, I could see she was by far the prettiest, and undoubtedly something more than man's best friend.
6: The are at Emerald Bay for the summer. I thought I'd told everyone.
3: Yeah, well, I'm the one who forgot to ask you. <laughs> My name's Marlowe.
6: I'm Kip Harcourt. Margaret, really. Kip's for the reserve section. Hello, Kip. I've never seen you before.
3: Yeah, well, believe me, I'm sorry.
6: I believe you, Marlowe.
3: Yeah, I got, I got a first name. I
6: like Marlowe. Oh. Forget about the Brants. Come on and play on this side of the hedge.
3: <laughs> I don't know the Pasadena rules.
6: Same as Texas.
3: Oh. No. Looks like we're going to have to move over.
6: I'll give Stevens a raise for this.
3: I just you said nobody was home.
6: Stevens doesn't count.
3: He does with me. Uh, don't move. I want to remember you like this always. You'll be back, sir. <laughs> this you know. Hey, hey, Stevens. Stevens, wait a minute. I'd like to see you. Yes, sir? I'd like to talk to you about Mrs. Cardwell.
7: Is, is something wrong, sir? Oh,
3: no, no. She's fine. I'm Philip Marlowe, Stevens. Is there some place we can have a visit?
7: we are upstairs over the garage in my quarters, sir. Mm. Uh, come along. Mrs. Cardwell isn't, uh, ailing, she said. Oh, no,
3: looked fine when I left it less than an hour ago. Oh, I'm glad to hear that.
7: Yeah, here we are. Come inside, sir.
3: Hey, nice place you've got here,
7: Stevens. It's a bit stuffy in here, I'm afraid. I've been closed up a few days. Oh. Yeah, there yeah, now. Sit down, sir.
3: Thanks. <clears throat> Say, uh... Stevens, Mrs. Cardwell misses you, and you can drop the sir with me. Marlowe will do, huh? well, I'll try, sir, uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Marlowe. But a habit of 20 years or so, you know. Sure.
7: Now, uh, Mrs. Cardwell misses me? Is that what you've come to tell me?
3: Well, that's about all she told me, Stevens. I understand you skipped a few of your regular Thursday visits with her, and, well, she's concerned about you. Well, I must say that's generous of her. Of
7: course, it's not been a few visits at all, Mr. Marlowe. I've missed the last two Thursdays, and uh, for a quite legitimate reason... My employers, the branch, have opened their Emerald Bay place. Yeah,
3: so Kip told me. Uh, the Miss Harcourt, I mean. Mrs. Harcourt, sir. Oh, really? That's too bad. Is it, sir? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, <coughs> Mrs. Cardwell seems like a nice old lady. You know what you mean to her. It's not just you she misses, you understand? It's a way of life, something she was part of and enjoyed. Uh, status, I think they call it. You know, it can be pretty important, Stephen. I understand that, sir. Sure you do. You'll give her a break, I know. Call her now that you're back in town. You know, keep in touch, huh? Yes, I... Oh, excuse me. Sure.
7: Uh, Don't leave, sir, please. There's something I'd like to ask you.
3: Stevens seemed like a right guy. Anyway, I was wondering about Kip, uh, Mrs. Harcourt. I had her figured, all right, but not for married. I dismissed her to the back of my mind and started casing Stevens' little palace. It was nice enough in the brown to gray motif, neat, tidy, like Stevens, except except for a bunch of packing boxes grouped in the corner behind the divan. And on top of them, three items that stopped me cold. A large bowl, a smaller one, and a long oblong box. All a mass of jade and gold carved with oriental figures.
7: You admire Oriental art, Mr. Marlowe?
3: Not specially. Do you, Stevens? Not specially, sir. You, uh, you said you'd like to ask me something.
7: Yes, and, uh, if I may, sir, I'd appreciate a straight answer. All my answers are straight, Stevens. It's my questions that get tricky. I'll remember that, sir. Are you certain you've told me everything Mrs. Cardwell said uh, about me? Very certain. Uh, does it strike you as odd, sir, that she'd hire a man of your particular capabilities to deliver the simple message that she misses me? Matter
3: of fact, it does, Stevens. Strikes me as very odd. I couldn't tell Stevens anymore because I didn't know anymore. It was my turn to ask questions, but I didn't have any yet. I was closing in on a pretty good one as I started down the drive again, but it got lost in the shuffle.
6: I knew you'd be back, Marlowe.
3: You always arrive unannounced, don't you, Mrs. Harcourt?
6: Henry's in Balboa. You're here.
3: Henry's out of his mind.
6: Don't you want a drink or something?
3: Yes, Kip. There is something I want.
6: Well, come on.
3: At the moment, a telephone.
6: Come on, anyway. You know, Marlowe, you're an odd one.
3: Yeah, everybody says so, yeah.
6: You're really coming into the house to use the phone, aren't you?
3: Well, like I said, I'm an odd one, yeah. Where is it?
6: To the right in the library. Thanks. Are you a friend of Stevens'? Why? Because you're not a friend of the Brant's.
3: Yeah, well, I'm really a friend of Mrs. Cardwell's.
6: Phoebe's? Why didn't you say so? Would it have mattered? Well, little. I lived next door to Phoebe and Horace for years. Here? Here. It's my house. Henry married my money. Poor Phoebe. Horace didn't leave her a thing. No one understood it. Leans against the estate as big as a house.
3: Big as the Cardwell house?
6: That's how the brands got it. Mm-hmm. Is she still interested in art, or do you know?
3: Oh, I think so, only uh, on maybe not such big scale. And
6: beautiful wings she donated to the museum. I guess she never gets over here anymore.
3: No, not much. Say, so, you know, I forgot the name of that museum. She mentioned it.
6: Live I... Oak Museum on California Street.
3: Oh, oh, yeah, yeah.
6: I liked Phoebe. Tell her Kip says hi when you see her. Yeah, I will. You still want to use the phone, Milo?
3: I, uh, used the phone. I called Phoebe Cardwell, explained Stephen's absence, and gave her Kipp's best. And the case was closed. All I had to do was wait for a check. But all of a sudden I didn't feel very good about any of it. It was like a hangover. You know, I felt something should make sense but nothing did. The jade and gold at Phoebe's, the stuff in Stephen's quarters that looked just like it. Was it hers? Did she give it to him? Did he take it? Questions I had but no answers. I stood there at the window in Kipps library and watched the car pull to a stop in front of the old cardwell place. Watched the thick little man get out and start to walk up the gravel driveway. I wasn't sure until he walked right past the library window. Then I knew I had the beginnings of all the answers. The thick little man was Fritzy Ott, one of the better fences around town. And he was on his way to see Stevens. A minute later, Kip told me of empty servants' quarters over her garage. Another minute later, and I was there. The two garages weren't six feet apart. And there was lots to hear if you listened. I listened. But
8: look, Stevie Boy, you
7: don't have it all. And it's not quite the point now. Can you dispose of it? I don't know. Two things, Stevie Boy. One, collections are tough to fence. Real tough. Two, this isn't the whole deal. I, uh, I don't understand. This isn't the whole deal. Some pieces missing. I've seen pictures of the Singku collection. Some pieces are missing here. Two vases and a ring, to be exact. Yeah, you're right. You got them? Well, not exactly. I, I might be able to get them. Look, I'm trying to tell you, Stevie Boy. One, I'm not even sure I can fence the whole collection. But two, I ain't got a prayer of doing it if it's incomplete. Are you with me there? Do you understand that? Yes, yes, I, I understand it, uh. It might take time to obtain the other pieces. Then you better spend some time, Stevie boy, or we got no arrangement whatsoever. I tell you, I'll nose around, see what's the best deal I can get providing you deliver the full treatment. You see what you can do about getting it, and we'll meet here tomorrow at noon. But I really don't think it... Oh, never mind. I... I've got to have the money. All right. Tomorrow at noon.
3: You didn't have to hang any signs on it. It was all there, or most of it was. The Sing Koo collection meant very little to me, but it meant money to Stevens and Fritzi Ott. I had an idea it meant something else again to Phoebe Cardwell. And I had another idea. The Live Oak Museum on California Street and the wing that Phoebe had donated to it. I couldn't risk the delay of a Texas rules bout with Kip, so I skirted the house and ran through the dust to my car. Five minutes later, I stood in front of the words Live Oak Museum, Percival Wallace, director, open to visitors 9 to 5 weekdays, 9 to 12 Saturdays, Twelve to five Sunday afternoon. Down nuts.
7: Not interested in art, eh, Mr. Marlowe?
3: We've done that bit, Stevens. My answer was not specially.
7: I dislike dissuading you in this manner, sir. But I'm a
3: quite accurate shot.
7: You know I believe that, Stevens? If I can't persuade you with this warning, I'll not hesitate to use this gun. I'll not hesitate at all, sir.
3: Stevens had a dominant personality for a chauffeur. He could give orders as well as take them. And I'm not a man who's at his best staring down the nose of an automatic. Well, we told each other a very proper good evening, and he left me with my thoughts, which were several and urgent. I bundled them together and headed for the Times office in downtown L.A. <laughs> Note, there's just one thing mustier than an old newspaper file. That's the man who files it.
9: 1948 was a big year, news-wise, Philip. The files are heavy. Well, how
3: was it obituary-wise, Belden? That should lighten it. Uh-huh.
9: Local, national, or international?
3: Local. Pasadena. Name, address? Horace, Codwell, Orange Grove Avenue. Uh-huh. Hardwell, Horace. That's it, that's it. Hmm.
9: January 30, 1948. Page one, part two. Hey, that's a good spot, page one, part two. Best local, but spot in the paper.
3: Oh, I'll bet Horace was proud like anything. Huh. Let's see here. Candy. Oh, here it is, here it is.
8: Mm-hmm.
3: Mr. Cardwell is survived by his wife, Phoebe Reed Cardwell, at home. Period. Nothing. Hey, Belden, you got one for her? Her? Phoebe Cardwell. When'd she go? She hasn't. She's somebody? She's somebody. Cardwell, Mrs. Horace, parenthesis, Phoebe Reed, close parenthesis, Belden). All right. Belden.
9: She could be more. She'll never make part two, page one at this rate.
3: Yeah, that's too bad, but read it anyway, huh?
9: Born Waterloo, Iowa, June 7th, 1876. She's Gemini, Philip. That's wonderful. Will you just read? Oh, yeah. Okay. Married, Horace Carwell. So-and-so, (coughs) so-and-so. Old California. She was So-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. Oh, Chairman of Art and Culture Committee, Live Oak Museum, Pasadena. That's it. Go ahead. Traveled extensively all over the world. Brought back many valuable paintings. And... Objects, the art?
3: Yeah, it's reasonable
9: To mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so the museum Most famous of which is Sing Woo collection of jade And, uh, well, that's about it, Philip
3: I love you, Belden, thanks So Phoebe had brought the Sing Wu jade collection To Live Oak Museum in the first place Now she had some of it, Stevens had more And Fritzi Ott was even now nosing around for a taker where did that leave the museum? Nowhere, so far as I knew. Except close till noon tomorrow, Sunday. And noon tomorrow, Sunday would be too late. Fritzy and Stevens would be together by that time. Note. Percival Wallace is a quiet little man who doesn't like to talk to private eyes about museum business at home or anywhere.
1: The museum has operated for 30 years, Mr. Marlowe, and not one shred of notoriety. Not one shred.
3: Well, I think we can keep the record clean, Mr. Wallace. All I want to know is when the Sing Wu collection was stolen from the museum. I didn't say it was stolen. I said we no longer had it. Okay, you no longer have it. How long have you no longer had it? It was
1: uh, since uh, Christmas week, 1947. Would you notify the police? Certainly not. Why? Mr. Marlowe. I tried to tell you, not one shred of notoriety in 30 years. Yeah, but it's a valuable collection, and it's missing. The board of directors did subscribe to a reward, Mr. Marlowe. Only a fraction of the Sing Wu's real worth, of course. A mere $20,000. But, of course, this was done very quietly. Very quietly.
3: So quietly, nobody knows about it. All right, tell me, did Mrs. Caldwell contribute to the reward?
1: I uh, don't recall.
3: And you wouldn't say if she did. Thanks, Mr. Wallace. You're just downright bully. <laughs> I got to Phoebe Cardwell's small bungalow in Venice in time to see a liveried limousine pull away from the curb. A few minutes after I got lost with the rest of the inchworms, the light-up-at-night variety, Mrs. Cardwell ushered me into the living room. When she turned on the lights, everything in the room jumped out at me again. The pink dogs, the blue cats, the souvenir pillows. But the most notable things in the room were the jade and gold vases that were gone from the mantel the jade and gold ring that was missing from Phoebe Cardwell's old hand.
5: This is delightful, Mr. Marlowe. Genuinely delightful.
3: Yeah, well, I was afraid it might be a little too late to call.
5: Oh, ordinarily, yes. Oh, but not tonight. Why, you just missed him, Stevens. He came back and took me for a drive. I just this minute got home. Oh, that's fine. Oh, thanks to you, Mr. Marlowe. I'm so grateful. He hadn't forgotten about me, you know. No, he'd been pissed.
3: Oh, sure, yeah. I bet he has.
5: I'm (laughs) embarrassed not to have mentioned it sooner, Mm -hmm. but... I have your money for you, your fee.
3: Oh, there's no hurry, honey. In fact, I've done so little that I... No, uh... no,
5: no, 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 I won't hear that. I'll pay you in full, of course.
3: All right. Say, uh, this morning I was admiring your ring in the vases on the mantel.
5: Were you indeed? Yeah. Well, I'm glad. They're quite nice, you know.
3: Yes, they were. Did you give them to Stevens, Mrs. Cardwell?
5: I beg your pardon?
3: Did you give them to Stevens?
5: Why, uh, really, Mr. Marlowe, you surprised me. That is none of your affair, you know.
3: I'm a curious fellow.
5: I secured your services to perform a specific task. You've done that. I certainly do not intend to discuss Stevens or anything pertaining to him with you, Mr. Marlowe.
3: All right. We'll leave it that way, huh?
5: (laughs) Not a word of any of this to Matilda now. Phoebe, right. dear. Oh, and Mr. Marlowe again. Yeah, I was just leaving. I told <laughs> the girls at the club all about you, and I am right, aren't I? You are Julia Marlowe's son?
3: Julia Marlowe, I... The uh,
5: actress, she played Barbara Fritchie for years.
3: She did? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, but there are no Fritchies in our families for years, either side. Yeah.
5: Really, Matilda, Mr. Marlowe's busy. He was just leaving.
3: Yes, wasn't I?
5: Philip Fritchie Marlowe. Oh, <laughs> It would have been a beautiful name.
3: The lights in Kip Harcourt's house were off when I got back to Pasadena. Those in Stevens' quarters above the garage were still on. It was better that way. I wasn't worried about Stevens' automatic anymore. There was a very good chance he wouldn't use it. Hey, Stevens, it's Marlowe. Open up.
7: Apparently, I didn't make myself clear, Mr. Marlowe, sir.
3: If you still want to try your aim when I finish talking, I'll be a willing target. Come in, sir. It's almost midnight. You're meeting Fritzy at noon tomorrow. We're going to have to work fast. I so... warned you to stay out of it, Mr. Marlowe. Now, listen, Stevens. Hear this. I know about a lot of it, and I got some good guesses on the rest. Let's make a deal. I'll tell you what I know and what I guess. If I'm right, you can get in touch with Fritzy Tonight.
7: And if you're wrong?
3: Well, if I'm wrong, one of us deserves to be killed. Go ahead, sir. Okay. Horace Cardwell was a wealthy man, a very wealthy man. He was a good businessman, and he loved his wife very much. That's right, sir. When he died, there was almost no money. A small amount, maybe, for Phoebe, but the house, everything in it, the cars, everything. Went to pay off debts, liens against the estate. What else do you know? That Phoebe Cardwell contributed a wing to the Live Oak Museum. That she brought our treasures from all over the world to put in it, including the Sing Woo Jade collection. That the collection's been missing from the Cardwell wing since Christmas, 1947. Horace died of a cerebral hemorrhage in January 1948, and nobody wants to talk about who took the collection. Least of all the people at the Live Oak Museum. And uh, what do you guess from all this, sir? That a man, even a very wealthy man, can run out of money, especially if he has a wife who's a wonderful woman but with an eye and a hand for expensive art treasures. Phoebe's sick, Stevens. Kleptomania is an illness. I know, sir. It's it's been such a well-guarded secret. It...
7: It took all Mr. Horace had to pay for the things she... She took people to watch her keep track of her. You know her, sir. He couldn't bear to get help for her, psychiatric help. Now she needs money just to live on.
3: She has so little and... You love her very much, don't you? Yes. Yes, I do. Well, she can't have too many more years, Stevens, and $20,000 is a lot of money. $20,000, $20,000, Mr. Moore. Now, look, Stevens. You've called it a well-guarded secret. Believe me, it was and it is. Even those of you who have been protecting Phoebe all these years haven't leveled with each other. How she moved the collection out of there, I'll never know. But the museum's had a $20,000 reward for its return for several years. All
7: right. I didn't
3: know that, sir. I know you didn't. And it suddenly dawns on me that Phoebe's been handing you the Sing Woo collection bit by bit ever since she, uh, well, came by it. Maybe an appreciation for your years of faithful service, huh? Well, she... She said it might come in handy, sir. If I ever needed money. If I needed money, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, I know, Stevens. Hey, you got a conflict tomorrow. You can't be here meeting Fritzy and be at the Live Oak Museum when it opens at noon, too. Well, I... I'll call Fritzie. Tell him our arrangement is off. And Stevens... Can't you just see Percival Wallace's face tomorrow when he eyes the Sing Woo collection again? Footnote to a happy ending. By 12.30 Sunday afternoon, the museum had the collection, Stevens had a certified check for $20,000, and we had an understanding that Phoebe Cardwell would suddenly discover that Horace had left us some money after all. 20000 in a checking account that had somehow been overlooked till now. Oh, well. The rest of Sunday was all mine. And I stood at my window and looked down on a thousand inchworms playing follow the leader. Back from the beach, the mountains, from Aunt Millie's, from anywhere. All kinds of people. Nice people. Not so nice people. Dames like Kip, whose husbands took trips. Sweet, harmless old ladies who took collections. (laughs) Oh, well. Where's that book? Oh, yeah. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah, here it is. She was the most breathtaking thing he'd ever seen. She lay back on the divan, stretched, and smiled languorously up at him.
4: Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, and was written for Radio Tonight by Kathleen Height and Adrian John Doe. Featured in the cast were Verna Felton, Bill Johnstone, and Lynn Allen, with Ann Morrison, Ralph Moody, Jerry Hausner, and Sidney Miller. Gerald Moore may soon be seen in the Santana production, Sirocco. The special music is composed by Pierre Garragank and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. <laughs> Be sure and listen again next week at the same time when Philip Marlowe says This time a pair
3: of green eyes held a promise. A house on Bedford Drive held a murder. A Malibu Motel held a secret. And I almost held the sack.
4: Songbird Evelyn Knight, a favorite CBS singing star, helps out vocally on The Mario Lanza Show tomorrow evening on most of these same CBS stations. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS here, Horace Hyde, every Sunday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: From July the 14th, 1951. That was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, originally heard on CBS. And the name of that episode, if you didn't catch it in the beginning, was The Dear Dead Days. Did you catch that point that uh, Phil decided, he well, he might go to work. Perhaps he was being enticed by the $25 a day. (laughs) My goodness, I don't remember. It seemed like... Back when I first started noticing things like that in in uh, these private eye shows, it was a hundred dollars a day plus expenses, or maybe fifty dollars a day, but twenty-five dollars a day. Boy, that was nineteen fifty-one, folks. Twenty-five dollars a day wasn't bad. Three dollars an hour. Well, I can remember when I was a teenager that the minimum wage was a dollar and a quarter an hour. That's that's the least I remember. And I can remember working for that, and then I remember when it went up to a dollar fifty. Everything's so different when I first moved to New York. subway tokens were twenty cents. What are they now? two dollars something like that two fifty whatever they are uh, Of course they don't buy tokens anymore now it's all electronic but it's funny how some things change and then some things don't. Did you notice when they went down to Venice he said that uh, uh, this gal's sister Verna Felton who what a great character actress she was. Uh, you hear her in so many things. I will always remember her as Hilda on the old TV show December Bride with Spring Byington and Harry Morgan. I I will always remember Verna Felton on that, but uh, you see her in so many things. What a full career she had. But anyway, her uh, she was living with her sister in a bungalow in Venice, and Harry... Uh, Or, I mean, Harry, listen to me. Philip made some comment like, they used to call them bungalows. Now they're not in favor anymore or something like that. Isn't that funny? A bungalow, of course, is usually a single-story house with a long front porch. There's whole neighborhoods now here in the St. Louis area, and I'm sure all over the country, where they are building bungalows. (laughs) Whole neighborhoods of bungalows. They're very much back in demand. We will have more Philip Marlowe in the weeks ahead. In the meantime, here's two more songs by our mystery singer. did you recognize the singer well that was sue thompson who had some big hits uh, just like those songs and that that was probably three of her biggest uh back in the very late 50s early 60s i remember it these songs every one of these songs when i was in uh, junior high school or middle school today and she was very popular she's a uh, missouri girl and she is still with us, and unbelievably, she is 91 years old as of last July. So, God love you, Sue. I hope you're still singing, because we're still enjoying your music.
10: Something
11: familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something
12: Something appalling, something for everyone of comedy
8: tonight Nothing with keys, nothing with crowns
10: Bring on the lovers, liars and
12: clowns ah! oh, Situation, no complications Nothing portentous or
8: polite <laughs> Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight <laughs>
0: Well, if you're in the mood to laugh, there's nothing much funnier than the Jack Benny show. And we have a good one tonight. Jack is a an avid golfer. Did you know that? And on tonight's show, which was originally broadcast on the 26th of October back in 1947, Jack is about to tackle the 7th hole at the Hillcrest Country Club in Los Angeles.
2: The Jack Benny program. <laughs>
4: Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the last few weeks, Jack Benny has been taking his golf game very seriously, playing every day. In fact, right and early this morning, Jack and Rochester got in the car and started for the Hillcrest Country Club. It's gonna be a lovely day, Rochester. I can feel it. Uh-huh.
2: You know, fall is the nicest season of the year. Uh-huh. And it's so. it's so invigorating early in the morning. Uh-huh. What'd you stop the car for? I gotta lift up the door. We ain't out of the garage yet. <laughs> oh, yes, these quonset huts are so long. <laughs> Now, Rochester, go straight down Rexford and turn right on... No, no, turn left on Wilshire Boulevard. I don't want to pass Pico and Sepulveda. Yes,
8: sir.
2: You know, Rochester, fall is my favorite season. When the leaves start turning golden brown and the fragrant breeze wafts them gently to Mother Earth. And at the close of each day... As the sun sinks beyond the horizon, it seems like some elfin painter has gilded the sky and left it glowing with a hundred brilliant colors. Ah, what cool men are! Not to halt their breathless pace and admire the beauties of nature. Rochester, what are you stopping for now? I gotta open the gateway and out of the driveway. Oh, yes. i better hurry, Rochester. I'm supposed to meet... What are you looking at? There's smoke coming out of the exhaust pipe. Huh? Let me see. Oh, that's just a little smoke. A little? If we could get this thing off the ground, we could do sky riding. <laughs> oh, it's all right. Come on, let's get going.
8: You
2: know, I'm supposed to meet Phil Harris at the golf club at 1030. Oh, boy, I can hardly wait till I get out on that course. The way I've been playing lately, I bet I'll. Oh, oh, Rochester. Rochester, pull over at the curb and slow down. Pull over. Oh, miss? Oh, miss? Going down Wilshire, Miss? Drive on, Rochester. <laughs>
8: Never give up, do you,
2: boy? Rochester, I merely wanted to give her a lift. You know, it never hurts to be kindly and lend a helping hand to those less fortunate who haven't got a car. Someday the tables may be turned, and I might. What's down, Wilshire, Mister? Get lost. It might be me who's in the same spot. I wonder why that girl wouldn't. could understand it if I wasn't good-looking or
10: something. Huh? Maybe it's the car, boss. Why don't you trade in for a newer model?
2: What for? This car always takes us where we want to go.
10: I know, but look how much older we are when we get there.
8: <laughs> What's
2: the difference? That's the trouble, Rochester. Everybody's in a hurry. Everybody's rushing through life. They don't stop to enjoy the beauties of nature. Like now, it's fall. The leaves are turning gold and brown. And the fragrant breeze wafts them gently from the earth. And at the close of each day, as the sun sinks beyond the horizon, it seems like some elf container has gilded the sky and left it glowing with a hundred...
8: What? What? Stop! You're upsetting the
2: motor! (laughs) I guess you're right. And Rochester, drive more in the middle of the street than falling leaves are denting the fenders. (laughs) Maybe I will trade this in. Oh, Rochester. Rochester. Pull over to the curb again. It's the same girl, boss. We ain't passed her yet. <laughs> I don't mean her. The one on the corner. Going down Wilshire, honey? Yeah, thanks, Mr. Benny. What? <laughs>
10: Dennis, what's the idea of wearing a green dress? Oh, I'm not wearing a green dress. I'm standing behind a mailbox. You better wear your glasses, boss. Last week, you almost
2: picked up the sunset bus. (laughs) Yeah. I thought she was winking at me, but it was the taillight. (laughs) Hop in, Dennis.
10: Okay, thanks.
2: Dennis, would you like to come along with me? I'm going to play... I'm going to Hillcrest to play golf
10: with Phil. Oh, that's where I was going, and Phil Harris promised to caddy for me again. Phil Harris caddies for you? Yeah, and he makes it so easy for me to play the game. All I have to do is carry the bag, tee up the ball, and Phil hits it for me. Dennis If he doesn't start hitting him better I'm gonna get a new caddy
2: Dennis Dennis Boy. Boy Look at me Huh? Let me explain something to you When you carried the bag Phil wasn't caddying for you You were caddying for him I was? Certainly
10: Gee, how I ever
2: got two shows I'll never know <laughs> Amazing, Rochester. Turn on the radio. We ain't
10: got no radio. Then
2: sing something, will you, Dennis? I can't stand any more of that talk.
10: Okay. Maury's, to the place where we dwell, to the dear old temple bar we love so well, sing the whipping poops assembled with their glasses raised on high, and the magic of their singing as it fell. They're singing all oh, the songs we love so well shall I wasting and Magurnin and the rest? Sheep.
2: Rochester, and I'll meet you on the first tee. I'm having lunch uh, with Miss Livingston. See you later, Dennis. Hello, Mr. Benny. Hello. Just Molly and me and Fibber McGee were happy with our new Hooper. La 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 a turn to the right, and Harris is tight. <laughs> yeah, I wonder where... I wonder where Mary's sitting.
13: Hello, Jack.
2: Oh, oh hello, Mary. I thought you were going to be alone. What? Who are your friends?
13: Those are my golf clubs. Put on your glasses.
2: <laughs> oh. Oh, I wondered what they were all doing on one chair. <laughs> the niblick... The niblick looks like a Blastvogel. Mary... <laughs> Mary, did you order something to eat?
13: Yes, and I ordered a sandwich for you, too.
2: Good, good. You know, I can hardly wait to get out of that golf course. I'm playing Phil today.
13: Oh, Jack, you shouldn't play against Phil. He's too good for you. What are you
2: talking about? You
13: know what I'm talking about. Look how George Burns beat you yesterday. Well? And the day before that, you took a trimming from Cagney.
2: All right, Cagney. So I was off my game. What about last week when I played O'Brien?
13: But, Jack, you're so much bigger than she is. (laughs) She sunk that 20 foot putt. You got so mad you kicked your doll in the sand trap.
2: <laughs> Who wouldn't be mad? Every time I got ready to drive, the doll would go, Mama, Mama. <laughs> what tricks those kids use. <laughs> and for 10 cents a hole. <laughs> <laughs> See, you'd think that. Oh, Mary, Mary, there's Lou Clayton and Artie Stebbins. Gee, they're great golfers. They hit the ball almost every time they swing at it. <laughs> Hey, Mary, look, look, there's Norman Krasner over there.
13: Norman Krasner?
2: Yeah, he's the fellow that loved that joke I told last year. You know, the one about like a moose needs a hat rack. Oh, he was crazy about it. He was? Yeah, watch this. Hey, Norman! Like a moose needs a hat rack! <laughs> <laughs> Every time I mention it, he goes crazy. I never saw anything like it. Hey, hey, there's Don Wilson
4: sitting at the next table
2: there. Where? Right over there.
4: Oh, waiter. Waiter, will you take my order, please? Yes, sir. Uh, what do you have, Mr. Wilson? Uh, now, let's see. I'll start out with a bowl of oxtail soup and a combination salad. Oh, a nice thick sirloin steak and mashed potatoes, some string beans, some carrots, and a side order of spinach, a little cauliflower, and uh, some hot rolls and coffee. Yes, sir. Any dessert? Mm, I don't know. What kind of pie have you got? Apple,
2: blueberry, peach, custard, raisin, and pineapple. Good. I'll have them. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) Did you hear that, Mary? How can Don digest all that food?
13: Well, don't you remember, Jack, last summer he was operated on?
2: Yeah. What do they take out?
13: Nothing. They put in a deep freeze. (laughs)
2: That's pretty good, Mary Deep freeze Hey, Norman Did you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) I knew he'd like it Well, I better get going In that locker room And Oh, Mary Mary, there's George Fazio He's the pro out here At Hillcrest Remember last year He won the Canadian Open Oh, yes And Mary, I've been Taking lessons from him And what he's done For my golf game Is simply wonderful Oh, George George, come here A minute, will you? Hiya, George. Hello, Jack. Uh, George, George, I was just telling Mary how much you've helped my game. I'm glad I have, Jack, and thanks for the check. Oh, that's quite all right, George. It was money well spent. You know, I'm going to play Phil today. Phil Harris? Yes. Well, do you think you can keep him interested in the game? What do you mean? The last time I played with him, I had to paint the ball green and put a pimento in it. <laughs> Oh.
13: I'll bet he didn't have the heart to hit us.
2: Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to meet him in the locker room. Oh, boy, I can't wait to get him out of that course. Do you remember all the things I've taught you, Jack? Oh, sure, sure, Joy. Well, let's find out. Your stance, feet apart. Your grip, interlocking. Your age, 38. <laughs> i got to run along now. So long, George. So long, Jack. Mary. <laughs> what a song that was. Hey, Sydney! Sidney, where's Phil? Well, he'll probably be here in a minute. Well, if I'm going to get into my golf clothes, get these clothes off. A pretty girl is like a melody.
8: <laughs> da da
2: dum be, dum boom. Hey, Jackson, stop parading on that bench. This ain't no runway. (laughs) Oh, hello, Phil. I'll be ready to play in a minute. Uh, Hand me my robe, will you? Which one is yours? The red one with the royal crown cola on it.
8: (laughs) Thanks.
2: Say, Phil... How about a little bet on the game? Ten dollars. You know, just to make it interesting. Ten bucks? Okay, but, you know, I haven't played for three months. I won't be able to hit the ball. What's the difference, Phil? It's only $15. Yeah.
8: Come on. <laughs>
2: Look, Jackson, I'm tired. I didn't sleep good last night. You know, that floor is awful hard. Phil. Phil, you slept on the floor last night? Yeah, it's the first time I ever missed the bed. <laughs> What? You know, them single beds ain't easy to hit.
8: They are if
2: they're standing still. Now, come on, let's go play. And, Phil, it's not my fault you haven't played golf in three months or that you didn't sleep well. Remember our bet, $20. What? Hi, Mary. Hello, Dennis. Sorry we kept you waiting.
13: Well, holy smoke, get a load of those old-fashioned knickers.
2: These knickers are all right.
13: And that calf hanging over one ear. You look like Jackie Coogan and the kid.
2: (laughs) All right, all right. Now, come on, let's play. You shoot first, Phil. Okay. Here's your driver, Phil. Thanks, kid. Now, stand back, everybody. (laughs) Four!
8: Wow, look at that ball go! Look at it go!
14: Look, look.
2: Two hundred yards at the most. Can't understand it after the awful life he's led. Well, it's my turn now. Rochester, tee up my ball. Yes, sir. A little higher. Higher. It looks like a lollipop now. I guess it's all right. Well, here it goes. Quiet, everybody. Four. Mm. <laughs> I fanned it. That's one stroke. Don't count out loud. (laughs) I must have been standing too far away. There, that's better. Four. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Darn it! Another fan. I guess I'm holding the club too tight. Well, I'll get it this time. Four. Hmm. I fanned it again.
8: It ought to be cool now. Four. Hit it.
2: Hit it with all these interruptions. Everybody yelling and screaming at me.
8: <laughs>
2: now here it goes. Four, four.
13: What are you pouring about?
2: There's some people standing down there on the green.
13: Well, you won't be there till Thanksgiving. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, yeah? Well, watch this.
8: Four.
4: <laughs> Whoa!
8: <laughs> <laughs>
4: what was that? You broke a window in the clubhouse behind
8: you. <laughs> Behind me! <laughs> Norman, shut up! <laughs> See,
2: I, I can't get rid of that slice. Oh, well, I'll take a four on this hole. <laughs> Come on, everybody, let's go. Remember our bet, Phil. Five dollars. Five dollars? You said thirty. I said fifteen, you cheat. (laughs) Now, come
8: on.
2: All right, stand back, everybody. It's my turn. Darn those birds. I wish they'd stop singing. They're throwing me off my game. Maybe they don't know you're playing for money. You can pipe down too. A <laughs> fine country club anyway, with birds all around.
6: And, and
13: trees and grass, it's awful.
2: Oh, Pete still. Hey, what hole are we on? We just finished the seven. How do we stand, Mary?
13: Uh, there's just one point between you. Good, good. Phil has twenty-eight, and you have one twenty-eight.
2: <laughs> well, there are two more holes. I've still got a chance. <laughs> I don't like this club I'm using. Hand me my spoon, Rochester. You
8: broke it over my head. I'm in the last hole. <laughs>
2: oh, yes, and give me my brassie. This is the worst game I ever played. Thank heaven it's not for money. Wait a minute. Keep quiet. I'm going to shoot. All right, stand back, everybody. Four. God darn it. What's the matter with me? What did I do that was wrong, Mary?
13: You never should have left Waukegan. <laughs>
2: What's wrong with my game? Rochester, you've seen me play better than this
10: I have?
8: (laughs) Yes What
2: am I doing that's wrong? Are you right-handed? Yes Are you using right-handed clubs? Yes Well, that ain't it (laughs) Dennis, when I want your advice, I'll ask for it
13: Hey, Jack Here comes Mr. Fazio, your golf teacher
2: Oh, yeah well, Jack, how's your game going? I want my money back. That's how it's going. <laughs> Fine teacher.
13: Oh, come on, Jack. Hit the ball. It'll be dark pretty soon.
2: Okay. Okay. Four. Where did it go? Where did it go? Where did the ball go? Here it
10: is, by your left foot. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah.
13: Congratulations. It was by your right foot when you started. <laughs> You don't
2: have to get cute about it.
13: Pardon me, boys. Do you mind if I go through?
2: Why, no. No, lady. Go right ahead. Gee, she's pretty old to be playing golf, isn't she? She sure is. How old are you, lady? 83. Well, well. Go well, right ahead. Let's see you hit the ball. Take it easy now.
11: Four.
8: <laughs>
2: well, I'll be done.
11: Easy. I'm on the green. Thanks, boys.
2: You're welcome. <laughs>
10: 83 years old, and look at her hit that ball.
2: She isn't a day over 70. <laughs> well, I'm too upset. Let's finish the game tomorrow. Phil. We're finishing it right now. Now, go ahead and shoot. Okay. Now, quiet, everybody, while I make this shot. Four.
8: <laughs> wow, look
2: at that ball go.
8: Yeah, right in the woods.
13: What a slide
2: Oh, well, come on, Rochester, let's look for
13: it. Oh, Jack, you'll never find
2: it. I'll find it. don't worry. I'll join you on the fairway. See you in a minute. Gosh, it's dark. That ball must be around here someplace. I wish I had a flashlight.
10: Why don't we go home, get a good night's sleep, and continue the hunt in the morning?
2: We're going to find that ball tonight.
10: That's what you said last
8: night. (laughs) Last
2: night? Have we been here two nights? And three
8: days!
2: (laughs) Well, what's the difference, Rochester? It's fall. The leaves are turning golden brown. The fragrant breeze wafts them gently to Mother's Earth. And at the close of each day, and the sun sinks beyond the horizon... It seems like some elfin painter has gilded the
10: sky
8: and let it going with a hundred wings.
2: Well, I can see better now that the sun's coming up. <laughs> and the ball landed right here on this side of the bush. Or was it on the other side of the bush? No, I guess it was right here. Hey,
12: boss, how would you like your eggs?
2: Scrambled soft. Okay, I was lucky I found that bird's nest. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
10: How would you like your bacon?
2: Bacon? Where'd you get that?
10: I brought it with me. This happens every time.
8: (laughs) Now,
2: let's see. If the ball hit this tree, it would have landed over by the... (laughs)
0: Well, that was the Jack Benny Show. That was originally broadcast back on the 26th of October in 1947, and that one found Jack tackling the seventh hole at the Hillcrest Country Club. Mm. know one of the things I really love about the internet, living with the internet, is you get instant information. And whenever I'm reading something or listening to something and I start questioning it, boy, I just immediately can research it online. The reason I bring that up is I was looking for some songs to play in this week's show. And I came across some songs by Bob Nolan, and I became very fascinated with this guy. It ends up he was born in Canada in 1908. He had kind of a bad childhood because his mother abandoned him. And he was uh, sent to live with different relatives for a number of years. But When he was 13, he caught up with his father in Tucson, Arizona, and he lived with him. And while he was there in school, he developed a knack for songwriting and writing poetry. And he got pretty good at it. Well, after high school, he kind of wandered around the country trying to hone this craft and make a living at it. And so he'd pick up odd singing jobs here, or he'd write a song there, he'd work as a lifeguard or some other job. But it wasn't until 1931 that he answered a classified ad that was in the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. It was a musical group looking for a yodeler. Well, Nolan got the interview. He found out the name of the band was the Rocky Mountaineers, and the lead singer was a, a young man by the name of Leonard Sly. And Nolan only stayed with the Rocky Mountaineers for a short time, but over the years he did stay in touch with Sly. In fact, in 1934, Bob Nolan and Tim Spencer and Leonard Sly co-founded the Sons of the Pioneers. By the way, did I mention that Leonard Sly later changed his name to Roy Rogers? Well, the group became popular and they started doing a number of Bob Nolan's original songs when they started playing them on a nationally syndicated radio show, a number of them became very popular. One of them was the one you hear in the background, Tumbling Tumbleweeds, which became their signature song. Over the years, however, the one song that probably stands head and shoulders above all the others is the one that we're going to play now. Now, the version I'm going to play is by Frankie Lane, just because I think it's a great version, and it's very easy to understand the song was first published a lot of people wondered exactly what it was about in fact it became such a major question in so many people's minds that one college professor actually did a thesis on the songs of bob nolan and he dedicated two pages to this song about cool water his treatise was even published in 1986 but he says that the lyrics and i'm paraphrasing the lyrics are meant to satisfy a thirst that may have been related to Bob's childhood experience and unstable family environment. The teenage Nolan was trying to highlight the battle between something true and something that was just an illusion, something seen but not felt. He may often settle for cursory answers instead of the truth, but his need to drink the truth overwhelmed him to the point that even the stars in the sky began to appear like pools of water. When he tells his horse, keep moving, Dan, don't you listen to him, Dan, he's a devil, not a man. He actually indicates that he knows the truth exists and he will keep seeking it. In time, he reasons, experience and understanding will come to those who ignore mirages and seek only the truth. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Then Hank Williams did a version, a very haunting version, Hank Williams Sr. We're going to play it at the end of the show as we go out tonight. But another online commentator I I read, who was anonymous, but seemed very knowledgeable, had this to say about Williams' version. He says, Hank Williams knew a terrible secret, that humans have a core of fear, that love is fleeting and treacherous, and redemption lies only in death. That loneliness and isolation are the only fate of humans. Williams turns Cool Water into an odyssey a tale of a parched soul pleading for deliverance only to find that redemption is only a mirage. Through his performance, Williams reveals his ultimate fear that the journey is not the reward but just another part of the horror. Williams drives this point home in the final verse where he discloses that what he really desires is release from the quest for He reasons it is better to be released from the search than to discover that what he is searching for is nothing but a mirage. Ooh. Well, it's interesting that Bob Nolan's own brother said that Bob wrote this as a poem when he was in high school. And since they lived in Tucson, they used to see a lot of prospectors out in the desert. And he said that the original poem, Nolan wrote was about an old prospector and his burrow named Dan, who seems to lose his way in the desert. And they're thirsty and they're looking for water. What do you think is the song about trying to determine the difference between truth and illusion? That understanding will only come to those who persistently ignore mirages and seek only the truth? Or is it about lost souls seeking deliverance and redemption that will never come? Or is it about a thirsty old prospector who finds himself in the desert heat, traveling with his burrow named Dan, searching for life-giving? That's the music all right. That's the music that takes us back to 1874. The place is Dodge City, Kansas. We are walking up front street shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Going to keep the citizens of this fair community safe from the gunslingers and murderers and killers that seem to invade these streets. Along the way, we're going to meet up with Doc and Chester and Kitty and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. Well, I hope you're in the mood for some drama. I hope you weren't wishing for one of the lighthearted episodes of Gunsmoke because you're not going to get it this week. This week, we have a very, almost a melodrama. This was first broadcast on CBS on April the 2nd in 1955. And it's somewhat of a morality play. Somewhat, it is a morality play. Matt Dillon has a bloody job. But then, doesn't someone have to do it? That's the question in this week's episode of Gunsmoke entitled...
1: Oh, hello, Chester. Oh, come on in, Doc. Ah, uh, where's Matt? He ain't here. Say, where have you two been the last couple of days? I haven't seen either one of you. Well, I just got back from Hayes City. Mr. Dillon sent me there to fetch some government papers. And you know what? I took the Santa Fe both ways, oh, Doc. you did? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that beats writing. <laughs> uh, uh, but where's Matt, did you say? Well, he left a note, but he didn't say exactly where he was at. Well, you mean he's out of town? That's what the note said. It seems somebody told him where he could find Jack Brand. Jack Brand? Well, what's he doing around here? I don't know. I guess Missouri got too rough for him. Why don't they handle their own outlaws instead of chasing him into Kansas for Matt to catch? Mr. Dillon says Brand's got three of his gang with him. You mean Matt's gone out alone after four men? Well, if I knew where he was, I'd go help him, Doc. Oh, well, there's nothing you can do about it, Chester. It worries me, though. That last hold-up the gang pulled, they say, four men got shot down. Mm. Well, maybe they've quit. Maybe that's why they came to Kansas. Oh, did you ever hear of a bunch of outlaws quitting? No, I guess, not. I, guess I was just talking to myself. Tester!
14: Mm. Master!
1: Oh.
14: Yes, oh, well, that's what
1: you're doing, Doc. <laughs> uh, Where is he? Well, there he is, sitting on that wagon. Oh, yes. Well, who's that with him? Some fella give him a ride, I guess. Hello, Mr. Dillon.
16: Hello, Chester. Doc.
1: Hey, you lose your horse, Matt?
16: We left our horses out at Bowers Ranch and borrowed this wagon. One of his riders will bring him in tomorrow.
1: Who's this with you, Mr. Dillon?
16: You've seen his picture, Chester.
1: Oh, my goodness. it's Jack Brand.
16: Let's get on, Brand. You first.
14: Sure.
1: How come you let him drive the wagon, Mr. Dillon?
16: to keep his hands full, Chester. Here, take my shotgun and lock him up.
1: Yes, sir. Where's the others? I thought he had three men with him.
17: Well, tell him, Marshal. Tell him where they are.
16: They're in the wagon, Chester. Out of that canvas. Mm-hmm.
17: Well, are they all dead, Matt?
16: Uh, all three of them? They're all dead, Doc.
17: bloodiest marshal I ever saw. It's just a wagon load of meat to him. That's
16: enough, Brandon. It ain't
17: hardly enough. I never seen such killing. So
16: what happened, Mr. Dillon? It doesn't matter. They put up a fight and I had to take him.
17: Well, I'll tell him what happened. Your law man here hid himself in the grass and just waited for us to come out of that cabin. And then he yelled, so naturally we headed for cover. Who wouldn't? He just laid there and he cut loose of the shotgun. Tore up two of the boys that way. Then he stood up and he cut down Hank Smith with a six-shooter.
1: How come you got
17: out of it, Brain? I jumped back in the cabin, and I give up. We weren't putting up a fight. He spooked us yelling like that. Make any man jump.
1: Oh, I suppose you're trying to say that you wouldn't have
17: shot him. We tried to shoot him. Who wouldn't? Any man's got a right to defend himself. Oh, well, I never heard him
1: resisting arrest called self-defense. I never heard
17: of no marshal shooting down everybody on the landscape. Lock him up, Chester. Get going, Bran. Well, he actually thinks he was killing hogs, not men. Shut
1: up. and <laughs> See, how come you brought the bodies back, man? Why didn't you just bury them out there?
16: I wanted more witnesses than me to identify him, Doc. Might save trouble when Bran goes to trial.
1: See, you were mighty lucky taking four outlaws that way, man. Yeah. yeah and you killed three out of... Oh, say, wait till people around
16: here hear about this. Bran's right, Doc. It's a lot of killing. An awful lot.
1: Oh, no, you don't. You don't get to thinking about it too much now, Matt. It's your job. You did it. And so it's over.
16: It's over? Wait till tomorrow or the next day. There'll be somebody else. There's always another man to kill.
1: Oh, no, that's not the way to look at it, Matt. I, I've never heard of you shooting anybody you didn't have to.
16: No, I never did. But sometimes that doesn't help much. See, you look tired, Matt. Well, I haven't slept since I rode out of here two days ago.
1: Well, now, you get some rest, and you'll feel better. Sure. Brand snug in jail, Mr. Dillon. He don't like it much, but I told him not to try kicking his way out, that I'd be sleeping in the office.
16: We'll both be sleeping in the office, Chester. I'm too tired to walk to my room. Uh, take care of this wagon. And what's in it, will you?
8: Mm-hmm.
16: You and Doc can identify those men. We'll write it out on paper in the morning.
1: All right, sir. Uh... I'll be coming to bed about midnight, but I'll be real quiet.
16: Nothing could wake me, Chester. Not tonight.
1: Gosh, Doc. You sure I shouldn't wake him up and tell him? It can wait until morning, Chester. Matt's too tired to do anything about it tonight, anyway. Mm, I guess you're right. Yeah, of course I am. Well, okay. Good night, Chester. Good night, Doc.
16: Mr. No. Dillon, no, don't make me kill you. Don't make me kill another man. Mr. Mr. Dillon, no, I've spilled enough blood. I don't want to kill you. Mr. No,
1: Dillon, Mr. Dillon, wait. no. It's me, Mr. Dillon. It's Chester. There ain't nobody what? here. What? You you was asleep. You what? you been dreaming? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I like the
16: lamp. No, 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 no. It's all right, Chester.
1: My gracious, I. I come in and I heard you talking and I I thought somebody was here. That moonlight ain't too bright. I couldn't see good at first. Sure. My, I had to yell at you a couple of times before you woke up. You was dreaming you was in a fight, I guess.
8: Yeah.
16: Yeah, that's what I was dreaming.
1: Uh, Nightmares like that, they're, they're just terrible,
16: ain't they? There's a bottle in the desk drawer over there, Chester. Get it for me, will you? Yes, sir, I know where it is.
1: I used to have nightmares sometimes when I was a boy, but I don't get them much no more. Excuse me, Mr. Dillon. A good stiff drink will do you good. Oh, thanks, Chester. <coughs>
16: Uh, What time is it? A little past midnight. Jack Brand awake?
1: No, he'd be Bellerin if he was. But, Mr. Dillon, now that you're awake, there's something I ought to tell you. Oh, what? Well, me and Doc was having a drink over at the Alphergans and a fellow come in there and started talking real loud.
16: Talking about
14: what?
1: Well, sir, mostly about how he's going to tree dodge and how he's gonna tell you too no. oh he says he's a friend of jack brands and he's heard about how you caught him and all
16: what's his name
1: stanger joe stanger
16: yeah i know him do well,
1: you think you'll cause trouble
16: probably but i'm not gonna worry about him tonight
1: yeah, so that's what me and doc figured he won't try nothing
16: tonight all the same keep your gun handy chester now, let's try to get some sleep.
8: Chester! Chester! Fire! Oh, my
16: gracious. What's
12: that brand hard
8: Chester. about now, Time for breakfast. <laughs>
16: Oh, go shut him up, Chester. It's hardly
1: hey, dawn. I'd like to throw a bucket of water on him.
8: Chester! Oh,
1: shut up, Brand. I'm coming. Time yeah, too. Cut out
8: that cousin yelling, Brand. What's the matter with you? Come on over here. Just unlock
17: this
1: cage, Chester. What? I'm holding a gun
17: on you, can't you see?
1: Where'd you get that gun? Huh. Right, Come on over here, i said. Well, he's ain't over there and there.
16: Hanging on the wall down here. Don't
8: take
16: your own sweet pat about it. I've been this chicken
1: coop
16: long enough. Drop it, Brand. What? Oh. 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 You're not hurt. I hit that gun. I got the keys, Mr. Dillon. I'll get his gun out of there. All right, go ahead. Stand back, Brand.
17: You like to bust my hand. You're lucky. Uh, lucky didn't kill me, I suppose. Just like you kill everybody.
16: Shut up.
1: I got it, Mr. Dillon. It ain't no good anyway. Not
16: now. Where'd you get that gun, Bren?
17: I made it, Marshal. Don't be smart.
16: Oh. Wait a minute. Joe Stanger brought it to you. He tossed it to you right through those bars on the window. I didn't,
17: didn't know Stanger was in town.
16: Didn't you? Tester, get some boards and nail them over the window so nothing can get through it.
1: I'll fix it, Mr.
17: Dillon. Oh, wait a minute, Marshal. That's the only window in here. You can't board it up. You'll
16: get enough, air you No, know, but it'll
17: be dark. I don't like it dark.
16: Don't you? When you get it fixed, we'll go to breakfast, Tester.
1: It won't take long, Mr. Dillon. <laughs> It's been some time since I've been out on the plaza this early in the morning, Mr. Dillon.
16: Oh, weren't you up gambling all night last Saturday, Chester? Oh, well, that's different. Oh, how?
1: Well, I've been asleep all night. This time, things look different when you had a good night's sleep.
16: Yeah, they sure do.
1: You didn't have no more nightmares last night, did you?
16: No, but I didn't sleep well. You you
1: ought to take some time off. Go out buffalo hunting or something.
16: Yeah, maybe I ought to take a lot of time off. Wait a minute, Chester. What? That's Joe Stanger coming there.
1: Say, by God, it is. What's he doing up so early?
16: Maybe he wants to find out why Jack Brand hasn't shot his way out of jail yet.
1: Well, he won't throw him no more guns. Not the way I got that place boarded up now.
16: Get out of the way, Chester. Yes, sir.
14: Morning, Marshal. You're up early, Stenger. Train leaves for Abilene about an hour. Going to Abilene? I'll be back next week.
16: Jack Brandt will still be in jail. I heard you caught him. Good friend of
14: yours, isn't he? Sure. But I ain't part of his gang. I never was. Yeah, I know. Of course, there ain't much gang left now. No. You're a pretty rough man, Marshal. When I have to be. Don't it ever bother you? Killing people the way you do? Stanger, I shot
16: a gun out of Jack Bryan's hand this morning. You come by the office later and
14: I'll give it back to you. Now, What would I want of a smashed up six-shooter? It's yours, isn't it? I'm wearing mine. I ought to throw you in jail, too. What for? To get you out of sight, if nothing else. I wouldn't go to jail, Marshal. Not without a fight, I wouldn't. I ain't afraid of you. You want to try it? Go ahead. Go ahead, draw. No. What's the matter, Marshal? I thought you liked killing men. What's holding you back? and it have to fight me sooner or later. Get out of here, Stanger. Go get on your train. (laughs) Wait till I tell everybody about Matt Dillon, how he's lost his nerve. Get out, I said. Well, I don't want to shoot down a man that won't draw. Not today, anyway. But I'll be back, Marshal. Next week.
1: Why didn't you shoot him, Mr. Dillon? He's nothing but a big bluff.
16: Just so you go on to breakfast, I'm going back to the office.
1: What? Why you
8: told me You heard
1: me? Well yes, sir. Okay, mister Dillon. Full of coffee, Mr. Dillon.
16: Thanks, Chester. I'll put it right here. What you doing, writing a letter? It's a telegram. Here, Chester, take this down to the depot, will you? Sure. I want it to go out right away.
1: US War Department. What are you telegraphing Washington about?
16: That's my resignation, Chester. What? I'm quitting right now.
1: Why, you can't do that. I've done it. Oh, I don't believe it. You're funny now A man
16: can quit a job, Chester. I've quit jobs before. Well, I know,
1: but this is different.
16: What's different about it? The government doesn't own me. But think what'll happen if you ain't marshaled here. There are other men can be marshaled. Mr. Dillon. What?
1: You ain't doing this because of, well, what
16: Joe Stanger said. That I've lost my nerve... No, he's wrong about that. And he's wrong about my liking to kill men, too.
1: You never killed nobody unless you had to. And now I don't
16: have to. I'm through, Chester. I knew I was through when I didn't draw on Stanger this morning. I've killed my last man.
1: I just don't know what to say, Mr. Dale.
16: I've hated this job since the day I took it. I never did have a taste for killing, and now they can find somebody who has. He'll make a better marshal than I ever was. That ain't true. Go send the telegram, Chester. I'll be at Delmonico's having breakfast. And with a good appetite for a change. After breakfast, I went to my room and got some of the sleep I'd missed the night before. And I slept Good. It was as though what was past was past. And none of it bothered me now. I didn't have to face it happening over and over again. And when I woke up, I felt better than I had in years. I even felt a little cleaner somehow. There wasn't going to be any more blood on my hands. Washington, as usual, was pretty slow answering my telegram. Week later, I still hadn't had an answer, but I didn't care. I'd quit, and that was that. I even began to enjoy myself for a change. Like the day I finally took Kitty fishing.
18: Matt? Hey, Matt, look, I
16: got another one. Uh, Well, throw him back, Kitty. We got more than we can carry now. I will not throw
18: him back. I will steal you.
16: (laughs) Come on over here in the shade. You've done enough fishing.
18: Okay. Hey, look at him, Matt. Isn't he a beauty?
16: Yeah, he's bigger than any I caught. Why don't you throw him in the sack and then sit down here, huh?
18: Say, you're right. I didn't know we'd caught that many.
16: Yeah. Maybe we'll have a fish fry tonight, huh?
18: We can feed half a Dodge with all those. (laughs)
16: Well, I doubt it. You ever see Chester go through a mess full of fish?
18: (laughs) The last time he starved himself a couple of days in advance... Maybe we can kind of sneak up on him tonight.
16: Ah, uh, no. He knows we're out here.
18: Maybe you ought to go into the business, Matt.
16: Oh? What business?
18: Fishing. You could do it for a living.
16: <laughs> well, I am going to have to find something to do for a living, I guess.
18: Well, yeah, it won't hurt you to loaf for a while, Matt. Yeah.
16: <sighs> I'm enjoying it.
18: You know something, Matt? What? I think this is the first time I've ever seen you that you weren't wearing a gun. Hmm.
16: It is. And I'm enjoying that, too.
18: Someday, maybe nobody will wear guns.
16: Yeah, maybe. You know, something, I'm sleepy.
18: (laughs) You're lazy. So lazy, you're probably going to starve to death before you find a new job. I
16: don't care.
18: Matt? Look, somebody's coming on horseback.
16: No? Mm Uh-huh. Hey. Well, that's Chester. Oh, he's as
18: lazy as you are. Imagine taking a horse to come this far. Oh,
16: Chester hates walking. Besides, he looks like he's in a hurry.
18: Uh, Maybe he couldn't wait for that fish fry. Mr. Dillon.
16: Hello, Miss
1: Kitty.
18: Look in that sack, Chester. We got about 30 catfish already.
16: Well, that's
1: fine, Miss Kitty, but...
16: Mr. Dillon, Joe Stanger's in town. Oh? Well, it doesn't matter to me, Chester. But you don't understand. Understand what?
1: What I come to tell you. Stanger's at the Alfaganza. A while ago, he had words with one of the girls there, and she slapped him, and he pulled out his gun, and he killed her.
14: What?
18: Who was the girl,
1: Chester? Kate Hawkins. Oh, no. That's who it was, Miss Kitty. And then the bartender tried to stop him, and Stanger shot him, too. And I hear he's gonna die. I grabbed a horse off the hitch rail and come right down to tell you you've got to stop him, Mr. Dillon.
16: I'm not marshal anymore here, Chester. I quit.
1: No, that don't matter. It does to me. You mean you're going to let Joe Stanger walk around Dodge and shoot everybody that gets in his way, including women? I'm through
16: killing. I told you that.
1: Who's going to stop him, then? You're the only man around here that'll go up against him, and you know it.
16: That may be true, but I'm still not going to do it.
1: Wait. Mr. Dillon wait a minute I've been thinking a lot about all this lately and there's something you've been overlooking
14: Uh oh
1: men like Stanger and Bran they gotta be stopped I'd do it if I could but I can't I ain't good enough most men ain't but you are it's kind of too bad for you that you are but that's the way it is and there's nothing you can do about it. Not now. It's too late. It's way too late.
16: Give me your gun, Chester. Chester. I'll carry it in my belt. Oh, Kitty. Chester will help you carry the fish back.
18: Sure, Matt. Sure.
15: Directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were John Daner and Lawrence Dobkin. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. You'll also enjoy Chesterfield's great radio shows. Perry Como sings all the top tunes on CBS Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Jack Webb stars in Dragnet on Tuesday nights. Check your local listings. Listen to Gunsmoke again next week. Transcribed for L and M filters.
0: I told you it was a dramatic episode. Boy, that episode of Gunsmoke was first broadcast on CBS back on the 2nd of April in 1955, and it was very appropriately named Bloody Hands. More Gunsmoke next time. Well, Chester once again is pointing at his watch. You've been quiet tonight, Chester. You haven't had much to say. He's hungry. He's pointing to his stomach. He's hungry. You didn't bring in food with you? He usually brings in a whole basket full of food. No food with you tonight. (laughs) All right. All right. We'll, We'll carry the shows back into the vault and we'll get ready to get out of here. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Listen, don't cry. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll come back. We'll play a whole new slate of shows. And this time, this time, I'm going to pick shows that you particularly want. How about that? Hey, they're talking about a little snow this week. Not a lot, I don't think. It'll be our first snow of the season in not Chester dapper running around in his deep bronze tan from his Caribbean cruise. That's why people take cruises. First of all, to get away from the snow and then to show off their tans. That's what I think. All right, everybody. Well, I am certainly happy that you stopped by and see you in two weeks. This is Bob Bro, and I am so glad you
19: the taste of water.